evening, I had the pleasure of meeting our speaker, and I asked him, just how should I introduce you? And he told me, he says, well, John, he says, he might just say that just another recovering drunk. And so with that, this is the time that all of us have been waiting for. I'd like to introduce to you Dave C. of Raleigh, North Carolina. Dave. Uh, thank you, John. Before I forget it, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me out here this weekend uh, for the hospitality that's been extended to me and for the good weekend that I've had so far. And it's just good to be here, and it's good to meet some old friends, and it's good to make new friends, I hope. It's good to be here. Every time. Oh, by the way, I like your idea of passing that hat before the speaker gets up here. Uh, It makes you wonder, though, uh, and maybe we ought to do that in my part of the country. We got some that we should have took the hat up before they got there, I'll tell you that. Uh, and by the way, uh, if any of you hockey fans are here in the wrong building, uh, you're probably at the right place. As I stand here tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm often reminded of a story that I've told many times, and this is no reflection on the committee of what's been going on up here tonight, but it, kinda, it, it makes me feel good to stand up here and be the only speaker, because you get involved in so many of these things that, uh, you know, you get ready to go in like a bow and arrow, and, uh, and you get all propped up to get up here, and then something delays you, and then you finally get up in there you are, all those eyeballs. and. And it reminds me of a story that was told many years ago back in my part of the country. It seems that they had one of these conventions many years ago, and they had one of these long-winded speakers. And he got up there and he started talking. And the first hour he devoted to the Twelve Steps. <clears throat> the second hour he got into the Twelve Traditions. And then the third hour he got into the Three Leggies. And gradually people began to leave. And they will leave, I found it out one night. And... Uh, Lo and behold, everybody left but one man. He kept sitting on the front row. And naturally, the speaker began to get concerned, so he wound up his talk, ran down from the podium, grabbed the man by the hand, and says, I want to ask you one question. Everybody left but you. Why did you stay? And he says, Hell, I'm the next speaker. Well, <laughs> you can kind of feel like a, you know what I'm talking about now. <laughs> I'm an alcoholic. My name's Dave C. Hi, everybody. I'm a member of the Big Book Group from Raleigh, North Carolina, which I think is the finest group in the world. And if you don't think the same of your group, then I suggest maybe you need to find another group. By God's grace and because this program works for me and through the help of some understanding sponsors that led me with a kind but firm hand and through the love of a loving wife that I found as a result of this program, and through the help of many people just like you. I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or any tablets since the day I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that day was September the 12th, 1957. 
I don't give my sobriety date to impress you. Sometimes it impresses me. I give it for two reasons and two reasons only. The first reason is this. I, I got sober up in Roanoke, Virginia. I come into Alcoholics Anonymous in the old central group in Roanoke, Virginia. The second meeting I ever went to was one of these discussion meetings. They had 13 or 14 wicked chairs sitting in a circle. I was no different from anybody else that goes to their first meeting, particularly the discussion meeting. I began to wonder what I was going to say when it got to me. And it finally got to me, and the man who was to become my first sponsor spoke up and told me what to say. He said, give your name and your sobriety date. That's all you're qualified to do. As a matter of fact, after the meeting, he explained to me that that's all I was going to be qualified to do for the next year was to give my name and some about today. The second reason is this. In that old central group, they had a saying that if you got behind the podium in that group, and if you didn't give your sobriety date, you usually didn't have one. So I've been giving mine ever since. I've received many benefits from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, just like so many of you. A lot of these benefits I call marginal benefits such as some peace of mind, a little serenity, some security, and a lot of happiness. But any time I speak of marginal benefits, I have to think of certain basics. And the basic benefits that I received from this program beyond my sobriety, and naturally the sobriety came first, the basic benefit that this alcoholic received is my sanity. My sanity. And today is the same alcoholic I find now that I don't have to run anymore. I don't have to lie anymore. I don't have to cheat or steal anymore. And most important of all, I do not have to sober up anymore. And that's what this deal's about as far as I'm concerned. I do not have to sober up anymore. And I didn't know that when I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know it. I took my first drink when I was 16 years of age, and for the life of me I can't understand why, because I knew what booze could do to a grown man. I'd seen what happened to my father as a kid when I was growing up. Because of my father's drinking, it led to a divorce in my home when I was 12 years of age. And my good mother was able to clothe me and feed me and give me an education. My father was one of these men that, you know, he was a good man as long as he didn't drink. Now, my father was an alcoholic. I didn't know this until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, I didn't know anything about alcoholism until I got into AA. And so I didn't stand the chance of knowing anything about my disease until I got here, although there were a lot of opportunities. I didn't know anything about alcoholism until I got into AA. And as a young kid growing up, I remember promising my mother that I'd never drink, I'd never be like my father. And sure enough, I went off to college and... Uh, this is when the fellows came back from World War II, a lot older than I, knew how to drink. I adjusted to this environment and became one of them, and I guess I wanted to do what the big boys were doing, and it wasn't long before I was drinking with them. Had a lot of problem with it in the beginning, a lot of gagging exercises, getting it down. You know, we work at it rather hard. I used to, you know, I used to hear them talk about the pleasure that comes from drinking, and I didn't quite understand what they were talking about. Because I was going through those gagging exercises, and then it was kind of smooth sailing. And one night I asked one of them, I said, When does the pleasure come that you speak of? And I've never forgotten what he said. Dave, he says, If you remember, there's a little pause in between from the time you take the drink and when you throw up, that's when the pleasure comes. 
I went on through college, and uh, I had a good time drinking in school. Had a good time. Didn't get any serious trouble. I uh, didn't know what a hangover was because I was uh, young, athletic, and drinking good, and enjoying life. And came my senior year. I studied engineering, but I began to do some peculiar things along about my senior year. I, I was there on a partial basketball scholarship. And when I got ready to graduate from college, I was off the job coaching high school basketball down in my home state in northeastern North Carolina. And I don't, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hindsight. I look back now, and, and and I was looking for glory, I think, and my alcoholism and glory seemed to go hand in hand, and, and I decided to coach high school basketball. And I went into this profession, and I had a lot of success in it in the beginning until the bottle got the best of me. And I fell upstairs in the coaching profession. In the beginning, uh, when I went to my first job, you know, I took the outlook that, well, here I am in this community. I set a good example for the young people. I do not drink, except on the weekends. And this was the outlook I had my first year. The second year, I began to find myself uh, meeting some of my former college mates at various cities throughout the state for a weekend party. You know, parties, parties. And there were brawls. And then a little bit later on, after I got a little bit further up the ladder, I began to find myself having a place to go every night to drink, usually with some other school board members. I've often looked back at this situation, and to my recollection, I never had anything to do with any of those school board members that didn't drink. And so I had a place to go every night to drink. And my, along about my fourth or fifth year, I've forgotten which, but I got to the morning drink. I finally got to the point that I had to drink or be under the influence of alcohol in order to perform, to go to school and do what I was supposed to do, because I had to teach a few classes. People began to see this in the community, everybody except me, and I remember the first time I was called in about my drinking. I denied it, I resented it, and got mad about it. And I began to put up that fight that we put up, began to deny it and do all the things that we have to do to prove that we're not drinking. And look for escape hatch, and what I did outside of what I do is get married, you know, divert their attention. And uh, we do strange things. And this is one of the strange things that I decided I'd get married. And so I met a young lady, we courted for two weeks, and we got married. Now, when you do this in a school system, you do get attention. I don't know if you divert the attention, but you get attention. And... Uh, to give you an example of how this marriage began, we had a, I don't know if you've ever heard of one, but we had a group honeymoon. We carried three other couples with us. And this is the way my marriage began. And I can remember when we came back, uh, we got, I got married on the first time on July the 4th. Now, nothing but an alcoholic would do this. You get married on July the 4th. And from the time we got back from this group honeymoon, uh, she began to speak to me about my drinking. I remember promising that I wouldn't drink anymore when school started. It was the first time that I realized that, not that I had a problem, it, it was the first time I began to see that I was having, you know, I, I couldn't stop drinking. Not the fact that I had a problem. My good mother, uh, I had one of these mothers, and still do, uh, that loved me to death. I was the only boy. I had two sisters, and my mother raised me and gave me about everything I needed growing up. My mother loved me so much that I just about died from it. 
And it was along about this time that my mother decided she'd try to help me. And uh, in just a few short months, I was uh, sent to some of the best drying out places up and down the East Coast. The good family doctor made arrangements for to go to these places uh, for my nerves. I was having a lot of nervous breakdowns. Uh, nobody ever mentioned alcoholism, alcohol, or my nerves were in bad shape, and so they'd send me to these places. And I'd come back usually in worse shape than when I went. I had a brief period of sobriety, not sobriety, I didn't know what sobriety was then. I just didn't drink for a while. Managed to get through that year, and then the next year I was fired on account of my drinking in the community. Beginning to get into a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. I developed another disease that's associated with alcoholism. I began to write checks. Uh, you know, I didn't have... Well, for a long time they honored them through my mother, and then she got careless, and uh, <laughs> they began to come to see me about these things. Now I can remember this is the truth. The only way I can illustrate it, I can remember at the school when you know, it was a rural consolidated school, and I can remember when the county sheriff used to come to the schoolhouse to see me about some of these bad checks, and he'd call me outside to his car. And at that time, it seemed to me that all those police or the sheriffs drove these old black tunnels, had that radio earl that just kept waving, just waving. You know, a sign of authority is a radio earl, I think. And as I began to walk out to the car, the kids and the teachers would begin to look through the window at me. And they'd begin to talk, I know, and, and the thoughts were going through my mind like this. They don't know it, but I'm an undercover agent for the sheriff's department. You know, begin to think a little, dream a little. Uh, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I, it seems to me that I, in all my drinking, I always want to be somewhere else most of the time. I always wanted to be with somebody else most of the time, and I always wanted to be doing other than what I was doing most of the time. Never satisfied. Well, it got to the point that just asked me to leave school. I had to resign, and then I was offered a job in a nuts. Uh, a little bit later on, at a rock bottom of schools, back in my native state of North Carolina. You know, if you keep moving east, you finally get out to the Atlantic Ocean, and that's what happened to me in the long run. I finally got out to the Great Atlantic through my drinking. And it didn't take long, thank God. But I went to this school, there was a rock bottom of schools, and uh, of course I was there for other reasons, and it wasn't long before I was in trouble at this school too. The same problems, but worse, this wife decided she'd had a left, enough and she left. I got to the point that the only way I can describe my drinking, I had to get up four or five o'clock in the morning, and at that time I had it to drink a pint of booze and stop shaking. So I could shave, get my clothes on, get to the schoolhouse, I had to drive 12 miles and begin to perform, and I knew what was going to happen at 12. The shakes would come back again, have some hit in the gym or in the automobile, take a few shots to stop the shakes, play for 3 o'clock, get in the automobile, go to beer joints, drink beer, and then go by the store and get enough booze to go home and get stoned to the ears. And this went on for six and a half months. Until one day the principal stopped me in the hall and says, you're no longer needed to give us the keys. Didn't call me in his office. Just stopped me in the hall and says, you're through. We don't need you anymore. Unbelievable. I didn't cry, and that's unusual at that time. And I've often looked back at this point in my life, and, and I really believe that I had crossed this, this land, this invisible land that we speak of at that time. I'd gotten to the point that I'd take one drink, and I could no longer guarantee you my behavior.
And to me, that's what an alcoholic is. One drink, and I can no longer guarantee you my behavior. I had experienced blackouts before, but never no prolonged blackouts. I don't know where I left school that day, and I don't know where I went for a period of two and a half weeks. But about two and a half weeks later, I woke up in jail for the first time in my life, where I was living, the city I was living. And when I came to, a man began to talk to me through a cell door. He was a county health doctor. And I never forgotten his words. He said, Son, says your mother has come down here, come down here and straighten out all this mess. And it was another mess, a big mess. Paid me out again, tremendous sum of money, and we're going to send you to a place where they can cure you. Now, I didn't know what he meant when he said that. I knew I was physically run down because I, long, I hadn't eaten in a long, long time, just drinking. And so they did send me a place for the cure, and I think I was about 27 years of age then. In my home state, the state in St. Asylum is called Dix Hill. Dix Hill. And I've often said I, too, found my thrill on Dix Hill. That's, that's where I went for the cure. Twenty-seven years of age, I didn't know what it was all about, and I got to this place, and the first few days they kept me in the building, uh, the main administration building, in a locked ward uh, with some strange-acting people. And uh, I adjusted to this environment also. Uh, the only thing I remember about those people was that they chased squirrels. And so I became a squirrel chaser, too. I chased squirrels. You will adjust to your environment uh, in most cases. And uh, this is a point I want to make right now. I, I really and truly believe uh, there are different environments when you drink. And I hasten to say that there's some environments in sobriety, too, which I was later to be confronted with. But uh, after a few days, they put me in a building called the old Edgerton building where all the men alcoholics were, and they carried me down to the place they called Skid Row, which was down in the basement, and they took my clothes away from me and put me in that padded cell, and they let me have my running fits. And days later, when I got through having my running fits, they gave my clothes back to me. And then I was allowed to do the only thing I could do for the next thirty-some-odd days, and that was walk up and down a corridor day in and day out, wondering what in the world I was doing there. I couldn't understand what I was doing there. Because I began to look around, and there was nobody of my age. The men were a lot older than I. And one night, observing these men playing poker, they were using matchsticks for chips, and they began to discuss the reason they were there. And I heard one man say, I'm here because my wife put me here. And you know, I began to think about mother. I'm here because my mother put me here. And really, she did the only thing she could do at that time. And then I heard this face, this face. I don't know whether the man is living, dead, or in AA or what now. I know he's not in Dix Hill anymore. But I heard this face, and this man said, I'm here because I'm an alcoholic. I'm here because I'm an alcoholic. And my God, when I heard the word, I resisted the word for the very word itself, because the first thing that popped in my mind was my daddy, my daddy. And I began to play a game. It just about destroyed me until I got to alcohol. Well, even after I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, that's uh, this game of playing. I compared my drinking with my father's drinking. And as the truth was known today, my father died many years ago. 
an alcoholic death. My father never got kicked out of the profession he was in on account of his drinking. My father never had to go to jail and be put behind bars for a period of time on account of his drinking, but I did. My father lost a family, and my father never had to be put in an insane asylum on account of his drinking, but I did. And I began to play this game for many years. The day came that I had to leave Dix Hill. I didn't have anywhere to go but back to my mother. He was a man 27 years of age with a college education, had some success in his life, and you go back home. And you know how it is. You don't go home except on special holidays. Or, and people begin to look at you when you get on the streets and uh, around the drugstore and uh, wonder why you're home. And you don't tell them you just come from Diggs Hill. Uh, had another nervous breakdown. And uh, but people in my small community where I was raised began to know that I was having a lot of nervous breakdowns. And they knew my situation better than I did. And, and I stayed at home a few days and was around the people there and the, some fellows that had been in school with me. And I often said that I, I don't know a great deal about drugs or pills. I know a great deal about tablets, though. Uh, my family physician, because of my nerves, when I come out of Dick's Hill, decided he would give me some tablets to take. And I took these tablets as he told me to take them. And, of course, you know, I just multiply the dosage, and uh, I took those tablets diligently. I did exactly as he told me to do, and I didn't have to drink as long as I put these things down my throat. I began to take them like popcorn, you know, and uh, I was, as like old boy home, at home says, you know, I was loose with goose most of the time, just floating around, and, and I'd been on these things about nine weeks until one night they passed a bottle of the crowd I was in. I had, I'd been with this crowd and hadn't been drinking. I wouldn't take a drink, but these... Tablets were doing it for me. And uh, I took a drink that night with these fellows, and uh, the compulsion was there again as I know it today. And needless to say, in just a few days, I went back to the place that said, I'll never go again as long as I live, Dix Hill. I went back to Dix Hill in five times in six months on account of one fact. I'd become an alcoholic. I could no longer guarantee you my behavior when I took a drink, and everybody knew it except me. The last time I went back to Dick's Hill, I woke up in the nut part of the bug house instead of the drying out part, and there is a distinct difference, in case you are interested. <laughs> and this was the time I found out about being in a straitjacket and tied down to the bed. This was the time I found out about how you live better electrically. I found out about that, too. <laughs> and I remember a lot of it. And I began to accept my fate. I began to adjust to this environment and the people that I was associated with in this locked ward. There's a strange word in Alcoholics Anonymous we hear time and time and time again, this word coincidence. And I don't know about you, but I can stand here before you tonight, and I happen to know tonight, for me, for this alcoholic, this power that we speak of began to work in my life a long time before I ever got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe it began to work that day because some, by some strange coincidence I was put back in the old Edgerton building with the rest of the men alcoholics out there, being taken off that nut ward. For no reasons has ever been explained to me. And I sure as hell didn't ask no questions when they moved me. 
And I'd been there so much that more or less made me an honorary attendant. Uh, I was allowed to work in the kitchen and go get the mail and do those things. And so one day, three other fellows and myself decided we'd leave. Now, like I've always said, I don't want to sound dramatic, but we escaped. And uh, at that time, you ran like hell and was like cops and robbers. And uh, I mean, all points bulletin if you came out of the nut house over there and we were just drunks, that's all we were. Crazy drunks, but we were drunks. And uh, sure enough, we got in downtown Raleigh, and uh, we were drunk that night and in the process of about three days being kicked out of three hotels. And then through a friend of the family, which I knew in Raleigh, through my mother's contact, I was able to get hold of some money and get drunk for several days. And then through this same friend who put me on a bus and sent me home. And I got back to my hometown, and my mother was in a hospital up in Richmond, Virginia, with a nervous breakdown. And I broke into her home. I stayed there for a period of about two weeks until they brought her home and found me. Upstairs in my little baby bed, drinking, having a good time, and, and they called me downstairs and rolled me downstairs, and they got together. And when I say they, I mean my two sisters. My mother, my close friend of the family, has been like a father to me. And they begin to talk, and you know who they are. They are those people that get in the next room, crack the door, and they begin to talk about how much they love you or what they've got to do with you. And they, they made a decision, and the decision was, uh, which pleased me to no end, and they called me in the den there and gave me a wad of money and told me to leave that part of the country, that I was killing my mother, and not to come back. And you know how the practicing alcoholic is when he gets that green on his hip. You know, these problems that we have begin to leave us. And I could begin to see, well, they are doing the right thing. And uh, it was enough money uh, to come to the West Coast and live comfortably for a period of time. But I'm an alcoholic. I go four miles to a neighboring town and pull into a broken-down hotel and stays for a period of months until the money ran out. And then I reverted back to the same thing I'd always done before when the money ran out, write a few checks. Four miles from home, and so I went over there one day to get money. I bought an outboard motor. I didn't have a boat, but I bought a motor. And, you know, write a big check, get, the, get that change, pick up the motor later. And they uh, called my mother a few days later and to tell her that my motor was ready. And needless to say, uh, John Law was there in that old hotel to see me that afternoon. They carried me back to my hometown, put me in jail again, and that local, three blocks from my mother's home. And each day the sun came up, everybody that came in that night, they let them out except me. And I began to wonder what they had me charged with. And uh, one night I got to raise him out of hell down there about I want to see my attorney. And the jailer, just out of desperation, finally came in and said, Who is your attorney? And I told him who it was. He said, Talk to him all you want to. He's in the next cell block. Sure enough, he was. He was in the next cell block. Now, uh, this power, this program has worked for that man, too. That man is now a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's one of our state legislators in my state. But he was my cellmate at one time. 
Uh, then one morning I had to go upstairs and stand trial on the court of law for something I didn't know I'd done on a previous drunk. Now, you'll have to understand this scene, too, because uh, my sister was the city clerk. And when they called my name, she didn't seem to know who I was. I didn't faze her one bit. The city solicitor was my mother's next-door neighbor. And I thought, sure, old Nick would know who I was and didn't faze him one bit. They didn't know who the hell I was. And uh, they got through and sent me back down in the, in the cell. And then the next day they carried me to another courthouse. And uh, the next morning I was tried for something I didn't know I'd done on a previous drunk. And to make a long story short, as I began to tell you in the beginning, I just kept moving the east until the fire finally got out there to the Great Atlantic. And I don't know if you know anything about the geography of my part of the country, but there's a place called the Great Dismal Swamp. And I was put on a chain gang. On account of one fact, I was an alcoholic, although I didn't know it. I'd take one drink and I could no longer guarantee my behavior. This is the thing that I don't understand about the disease even today, even after the sobriety and the, the people that have been around in AA. And that's the inability of the alcoholic to see himself as he really is in his worst moments. And I was the same way. Just about died from it. Oh, there were times when I used to, you know, take a glancing look at myself Usually, when I was down and out and I had to bargain with somebody to get something, and I'd begin to say, well, maybe it's the beer, maybe it's the wine, just a glancing look. But invariably, strange as it may seem, invariably, as I began to get my health back from this bout, invariably, as I'd get my health back, the liar in me would revive again, and I'd become that same person I'd always been. You see... I could honestly deceive myself, and this is a sickness at its worst. I didn't stand a chance. I've often been ashamed of what I had to do and where I went. But if it took this, and I, did, I do think it took this for me to eventually get the Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want you to understand something. You don't have to do the things that I did to do something about your drinking. But I did. I, I was one of these people that just had to be beat down to my knees to see myself. And this was just the beginning. And lo and behold, the day came that I had to leave this place. I didn't want to leave because of the shame. And I went back. Nobody in my family to have anything to do with me anymore. I was outcast. But I went back to my hometown. They carried me back to my hometown and let me out on the streets. And again, I went back to my mother. And this time, I don't know why, I went to the back door instead of the front door. I guess I thought I was second class. And she came to the door and began to talk to me. She knew I was coming back to town. And that afternoon they got together again. My brother-in-law decided he'd come over this time. And hell, if the truth was known, he should have been the... Uh, well, we won't talk about that. But, you know, I heard my mother tell him, says, that's my son, he stays here tonight whether you like it or not. Now, this was at this time in my life and my drinking, and again, I don't know what sobriety was. I, I made a vow that what I would do, I just wouldn't drink anymore on account of my mother. After he ate, I decided I, I just wouldn't drink anymore for her. I'd do it for her. And I was able to do this for a period of about 
seven, eight months. Finally, it was suggested one day maybe I should go to work. It's been a long time since I'd worked in him. I didn't think I could get a job teaching in the state of North Carolina, so through an agency up in another state, Virginia, I was interviewed for five different jobs in five different cities in five different states. And one afternoon we wound up in Roanoke, Virginia. My mother's with me. She carried me on this trip to talk to these people. And uh, this man began to talk to me, and I liked him, and he seemed to like me. He got on the telephone and they found out about my drinking all in a period of about five minutes by talking to some people down in my home state. I never forgotten what he said. He said, Dave says, we understand you have a problem with drinking at one time, but that you're cured now. And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he says, well, we want you to go to work for us. And I left Roanoke, Virginia that Thursday afternoon to go back to my hometown down in northeastern North Carolina. My mother financed this whole expedition. I was to go back on the following Saturday. I wardrobe, money in my pocket, a place to stay when I got there, and I uh, took the old Greyhound bus and had to change buses up in Virginia, and while I had a little layover, I decided, you know, <laughs> I'd have one drink, but I bought two pints. <laughs> you have one drink, but you buy two pints. And this was the beginning of my last drunk, really the only drunk that I like to talk about, because I, I really believe. If I forget my last one, I might have another one coming. This is the only drunk that I really like to talk about is my last one. I don't want to ever forget it as long as I live. I won't ever forget the horror, the hurt, and the loneliness that I experienced on my last drunk. And what happened to me was this. I was able to last on the job. I, I went back to the drinking. Naturally, uh, by the time I got to Roanoke, I was in full bloom. And the fifth day, I got back to the morning drink. In two weeks, I'd lost a job. I was able to work one week. They hired me back twice. They did everything they could do to help me. Middle way this drunk, my mother got in touch with me on the telephone, and my mother gave me the greatest gift she's ever given me since the day I was born. That's when she kicked me out of her life, and I knew she meant it. And I knew she meant it. And days later, I was out of the big hotel, doing the best I could on the streets the best I could. Two weeks later, or about two weeks later, on a Sunday morning, September 11th, I was in a back alley in downtown Roanoke on what they call Skid Row, trying to get a drink of liquor down. And the thought occurred to me that I was going to die in that back alley. I'd finally gotten to the point that I heard enough to do something about it. I began to search for the truth for the first time in my life. I thought I was going to die in that back alley, and I didn't want to die in that back alley. And the thought occurred to me, by some strange power, that, my God, I'm dying from what I'm doing. And when the thought came, the other thought came, well, what do I do? I'm a leper. I'm the only person on God's green earth like this, in spite of where I'd been and the people I'd known. I thought I was a leper. And I cried out for some help. The only man, coincidence maybe, the only man that really knew me in that city, the superintendent of city schools, found me that morning in that back alley. And I didn't take the drink. He wanted to help me and didn't know how to help me. He knew a man that knew a man in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. And he got in touch with that man, and he told him what to do. And that superintendent of schools carried me to... A place in downtown Roanoke that Sunday afternoon called the Easy Does It Club. 
and carried me up those staff steps. Uh, he got some fellows to help carry me up the steps. I wasn't drunk. I'd gotten to the point of my last drunk that I couldn't black out. And I couldn't find that oblivion anymore, like a sponge. And I hurt. I hurt all over. My hair hurt. My toenails hurt. You know, sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired and tired of the high cost of low living, and that's what it is. And they carried me up those steps, and fellows, and this man, and I don't know why it is. Uh, we say that we don't look them over when they come in, but by God, you look me over. And while you were looking me over, some of you got over in the side there and began to chatter. And there was an old gentleman standing in the right-hand corner. I never got behind a podium. I don't mention this man. His name was John Tullock. Old man John, we called him. And that man called me over. He was kind of feeble, and he put his arm around my shoulder, and he said, Son, says, all you've got to do is listen to these people and do what they tell you to do, and you never have to be alone again. Now, what old man John was telling me then, as I know it today, there was the first few lines of chapter 5. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has still followed our path. That's what he was telling me. And I don't know when he said I didn't have to be alone anymore. It, it meant a lot to me because it, it just told me that I didn't have to go back out that door anymore. And I didn't know these people if I could do what they tell me to do. And I thank God for the fact that I shut the door behind me when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I haven't had to go out there anymore. Maybe that's what kept me sober my first hour, maybe the first year was to know that I didn't have to be alone anymore as long as I stayed around you. Now, old man John, very unique, he's the man that rang my bell. This old man coming to age when he was 76 years of age, and he died at 82 with six continuous years of sobriety. I helped burn. And this is the man that gave me that gift. And after you got through looking me over, uh, you began to talk to me a little, and I began to shake a little. And I said something about a drink. And they said, no, we don't do it that way. He said, if you get too bad, we're going to get a doctor for you. And then I said something about some tablets, and I thought I'd started a revolution. <clears throat> and uh, no, no, no tablets. And said, drink some of that coffee. Drink some of that coffee. Now, I don't know who made the coffee here this weekend, but I've always contended, and I still contend, that there are a hell of a lot of people in the Alcoholics Anonymous making coffee that ain't got no business doing it. <clears throat> and this was one of those days. It says, drink the coffee. And my God, I thought it was a requirement. And you know, it was that hanging stuff. It was a solid just to drink the coffee. And so I drank that damn coffee and drank it and drank it, and they carried me to my first meeting that night, and I don't know what went on. I, I, I remember some of the people. I don't remember nothing about the speaker, but most important of all, I remember after the meeting, I don't never want to forget it. Strangers, complete strangers, are walking up to me and saying, we love you, and we understand you're going to be all right. We love you and we understand you're going to be all right. And if nobody told you that when you walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, as far as I'm concerned, you got shortchanged. 
We love you, and you're going to be all right. And that night it was proved to me I didn't have to be alone anymore. Three men got me a room in the YMCA, and they stayed with me all night long talking to me, telling them about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my God, they gave me some hope. They took turns. They didn't nurse me. And they promised me they'd get me a doctor if I got too bad. And I was hurting. I was shaking. And they took turns sitting on top of them and talking to me. Yeah, you know what I mean. And lo and behold, the sun finally came up. And I remember old Claude. Claude's dead now. And the first time I ever heard it, he said, Dave says, maybe you can make it today. He said, that's all we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, just one day at the time. And that was the first time I ever heard it was from this man. And my God, you know, maybe it was a coincidence. But, you know, I began to have some hope that maybe I could make it a day. But, you know, back in the deep recesses of my mind, I knew one thing. They had to be with me. They had to be with me for me to make it. I knew that. And thank God they stayed with me. And a little later on that morning, they carried me back down to the old Easy Does It Club, and I began to meet a man that morning who was appointed my first sponsor. And he began to talk to me and ask me some questions, asked me a lot of questions. And all the answers I gave to him were negative. You know, do you have a job? No. Do you have a family? No. How'd you get here? How many checks do you have out? I didn't know how he knew that. And I had him out there, too. And the summation of the whole conversation, he says, it seems to me that you're not doing so hot. <laughs> and uh, it dawned on me that I wasn't doing too good either. Uh, and then he began to tell, tell me about this program and what it could do for me. And then if I wanted the program, that I had to do certain things. That if I didn't think I could do these things, I was free to leave any time I wanted to. He began to tell me about the promises as I outlined in our book, and I, and I thought he was crazy. And I'm standing here tonight to tell you this, those promises have been fulfilled in my life. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how we come in and we begin to doubt? And I was a doubter. And so I began this deal one day at the time with a bunch of people leading me who were complete strangers that I didn't know that took me off the streets in this city and gave me this program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And they gave me much. A few days later, they got me a room in a boarding house where six other members of the group lived. Every one of them had a room there, and I, had a, I don't know who paid for my room and board my first six months in Alcoholics Anonymous and who gave me my clothes, but somebody did. And those six men in that boarding house gave me much. And I helped bury two of them. One of them on account of going back to the drinking, and one of them killed himself. Out of those six men, two of them are dead because of drinking. Two of them are drinking today, and two of them are sober. And I've often wondered, why me? Why me? They gave me much. And so I began to walk this road that we speak of in this program, listen to these people and doing what they told me to do. Wasn't long before, I, well, there was another strange thing happened, another coincidence. Uh, my wife, my present wife, Sue, some of you, Johnny and Dottie Noah, this was another gift. And this woman's never seen me drunk, never seen me drink. But she's been through more hell than my first wife did when I was drinking, because this woman has seen me try to grow up. 
And that's what I've been trying to do for a number of years, just grow up. And she's been through a lot of hell, but she was a gift to me. And I don't know, I rocked along and things got better, and finally, you know, uh, and that group, uh, they didn't mind calling you. They had a conference room where they called you in to take your inventory once in a while. And I've often said that I've learned much more from people in AA with less education than I. And one night they were talking about my employment problem. And a man who solved my employment problem had a third grade education. He was a painter. His name was Red. And they had it around in a circle one night discussing me about getting a job. And Red says, Dave. It seems to me that if you studied engineering in college, that's what you ought to be doing in life. <laughs> well, hell, nobody ever explained it to me that way before. <laughs> really? Yeah, Red was right, uh, as I know it today, and uh, so I took Red's advice, and through Sue's help, I went to work for the Virginia Highway Department, and, and uh, things got better. and. After a while, I got some sobriety, and I was getting along pretty good, and lo and behold, uh, after about a year, a little over a year, I, I began to be the backbone of the group. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Oh, it wasn't long before. They finally let me talk. Uh, the first talk I ever got, uh, gave in AA was uh, one of the fellows in the boarding house had gotten drunk. And they had him propped up at the meeting, the other fellows, and had him propped up in the back row. And I was to give this dissertation tonight, that night, and, and I devoted the talk to him, naturally. <clears throat> Never heard of one, but I gave a talk on how not to slip. And uh, I'd been gone about 20 minutes, and I heard somebody say, sit down. <laughs> and you know, you don't hear them. And uh, I kept on going, and I heard somebody say, sit down again. And I didn't sit down, and finally he come to the podium and took me by the arm and set me down. And that man was my first sponsor. And you know, the back row in that group, we called it Humility Row. That's where all the old-timers sat, and guess who always sat with them? And I went back to take my seat, and uh, after the meeting, uh, <laughs> a couple of them began to talk to me a little, and you know... Uh, those old-timers, thank God, thank God for them. Uh, after the meeting, one of them began to talk to me. And you know, when they begin to talk to you, you take it as a compliment in the beginning. But when you really think about it, it ain't a compliment at all. And I've never forgotten what old John said. He said, John, uh, Dave, at the rate you're going, you're going to be the next governor of the state of Virginia. And you know, wheels begin to turn. And, and I said, well, maybe this is the place. But uh, it was along about this time that I, you know, I never, I never, nobody ever had a better background in the program than I did through my sponsor and what he stood for in this program, the big book, and the steps, and the traditions, the whole works. But I began to hang around a bunch of people on the outer fringes of Alcoholics Anonymous that were not going to meetings. I began to listen to these people. I began to adjust to this environment. And it wasn't long before I began to think like they were thinking. And it wasn't long before, as I know it today, I had a one-step program. I was an alcoholic. But thank God, 
some old-timers in that group, and my sponsor saw what was happening. Not the fact they had the responsibility, they had the guts to tell me what I needed to hear instead of what I wanted to hear. And they called me in one afternoon after a year and a half sobriety and sat me down and told me the facts of life about alcoholic phenomena and told me unless I started doing certain things that I was going to get drunk. Now, this is a hell of a thing to tell the backbone of the group that he's going to get drunk, but that's what they told me and says, you haven't got honest and you need to work on these twelve steps. And God, I got mad. And I got ready to go bolt out of that door, and my sponsor stopped and asked me one question. And I forgot it. He said, Dave, when, before you go, I want to ask you one question. He said, when was the last time you thanked God for a day of sobriety? And I left. And I went back to that boarding house and locked myself up in that room. And I wasn't going to take a drink. The thought hadn't crossed my mind. But I wanted to get back at them. I wanted to get back at them. So I decided what I'd do, and I began to compose it. I sat down and wrote him a written resignation. I just resigned from Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> and the more I wrote, the more I heard that voice, that echo, and it got louder and louder and louder. This is the God's truth. When was the last time you thanked God for a day of sobriety? And the end result was I was finally forced to my knees to pray to a God I knew nothing about for the first time in my adult life. After a year and a half in alcoholic phenomenon, praying to God I knew nothing about for some help. And God to me then was a question mark in the sky. Maybe yes, maybe no. And you know what happened? I got off my knees and I went in the bathroom and I looked at myself for the first time in my life in a mirror, eyeball to eyeball, and I knew exactly what I was, and I have known ever since, and that I'm just a speck on this universe that I was born in the world and someday I'll die and soon be forgotten. And if I wanted to stay sober, the only way I had to go was through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because I tried everything. And so the next night I went back to my group. I rejoined Alcoholics Anonymous and I rejoined 22 times since then. <laughs> I do it every year and it works. And I had to eat a lot of crow and when I got back I joined the click in AA. Now, if you want to know what the click is, you go to the meeting sometimes and see who does the work. I started making coffee and washing cups and setting up for the meeting. And when the meeting was over, I began to tear it down and do what they told me to do. And so I began on my mother click, and I started doing those things they told me to do. And life got better, and I got into those twelve steps. And it was long about this time that I finally had the chance to move back to North Carolina. Really the reason was to get a divorce from my first wife so Sue and I could be married. I moved back to North Carolina, and my sponsor had made arrangements for a man to take me over when I got to North Carolina. And God, I've been fortunate. This man was the first, one of the first 100 in AA out of New York. He married a girl in Raleigh, and his name was, break no anonymity, his name was Tom Burrell. Tom replaced Dr. Bob Smith on the old Alcoholic Foundation as a trustee. Tom was a native New Yorker. He married a girl in AA that lived in Raleigh, an elderly woman who was a member. And he was the man who decided to take me over when I got to Raleigh. And I don't know, I've often thought about him many, many times. He was the man that rammed the big book down my throat. Because after I moved to Raleigh, I used to ask people questions to let them know how smart I was. And Tom would say, read the book, and then we'll talk. And uh, he was the type that always made you sit down, he stood up and talked down at you. And I began to, uh, he gave me the greatest secret I know 
about standing behind one of these things. I began after about, I'd been sober about five years, I guess, and began to go to a lot of these conventions and retreats and conferences and roundups, and I began to watch these jokers stand up here talking. And God, everybody clapped like hell when they got through and hugged them and kissed them. And, and I began to sit there, you know, and start to think, uh-huh. And so one night after the meeting, I told Tom, or before the meeting, I told him I wanted to talk to him after the meeting. He said, uh, we'll talk after the meeting. So after the meeting, he called me in a little ante room. He stood up. I sat down. He said, what's the problem? I said, Tom, I think I'm a convention speaker. <laughs> well, I can't repeat what he said. <clears throat> but the end result of the conversation was this, uh, that from that time on, any time I spoke in that group, he'd tell me when. There was a moratorium put on my speaking for three damn years. And uh, that's the way it was for me. I'd been sober close to eight years. And one day he called me over to his house and said, Bring Sue with you. I went over there and uh, got in his den. I sat down. He stood up. And he looked down at me. He says, Dave says, You're going down to Columbia, South Carolina to talk at the state convention. You do this, you do that, and you do this. Before you go, there's something I want to tell you. They asked me to go first. You're going as a damn substitute, and don't you ever forget it as long as you live. <clears throat> so now you know what I mean about being a substitute. I've been a substitute ever since. Life has been good to me. I've been involved in AA, and Tom got me interested in service work, and I've had a lot of, a lot of rewards in that. And had the privilege to travel throughout the country and service work as a trustee in the past, and just many, many good things. But you know, maybe there's somebody like I was here tonight, and maybe, maybe you're at that point in your sobriety that you're beginning to quarrel with yourself or fight with yourself about this thing, about this thing called honesty. That's the problem I had even after I got sober. Honesty. You know, there are different kinds of honesty. There's, there's honesty. There's real honesty, there's cash rescue honesty, then there's a naked truth. <laughs> and that's what I had to start dealing with, the naked truth. And that's a lot different. And you know, uh, that's what I had to really start digging into through these steps and beginning to know me. Oh, there's a person I'd like for you to see in me, and then there's a person you probably see in me. But there's the person I see in myself. And that's what the whole ball game's about, as far as I'm concerned. If you're quarreling with yourself or you're fighting with yourself, you get hold of the word truth, or honesty, or whatever you want to call it, because I happen to believe that this power that we speak of so much, that when he walked the face of the earth in the body of a man, he didn't say, I'm a truthful man. He said, I am the truth. I believe it's from this source and this root that we inherited this wonderful program called Alcoholics Anonymous, because I've seen enough in my time and age not only to believe but to know that there is a power behind this program that stands, you and I, it stands ready to help you and I if we're willing to help ourselves. In the beginning, I call it the man upstairs, and tonight I call it the God of my understanding, the God I found in Alcoholics Anonymous, the God that I found through you by your love for me, and that's the only way I was able to do it. Coincidence, a strange word. Maybe it's a coincidence that my mother finally took me back in her life after nine and a half years in AA, and this thing used to gnaw at my gut. 
And Tom used to say, keep on working the program and do the things you're supposed to do, and this too shall come to pass. And it finally came to pass in a very strange way. My mother would have nothing to do with me. She saw me after three years of sobriety, and she didn't believe it. And then I went to visit her quite often, quite often, and we just couldn't get along. She could never understand why I could do this thing for a bunch of strangers, and I couldn't do it for her. And she didn't want to understand the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But God does work in mysterious ways. After nine and a half years of sobriety, I was asked to talk to my hometown, one of these little anniversary meetings. I asked my mother to come to the meeting. She wouldn't come. Unbeknownst to me, three old ladies that knew me when I was a little boy came to that meeting. And they heard me speak and tell my story and what I was trying to do in life. And when that meeting was over, unbeknownst to me again, they went to see my mother. And that night about nine o'clock, after I got back home in Raleigh, the phone rang. It was my mother crying, asking me to forgive her for what she had done to me in my sobriety. And these old ladies went to my mother and told her about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and about her son in AA. God does work in mysterious ways. Coincidence? I don't think so. I look around tonight, you know, and, and I know for a basic fact the reason I'm here for several reasons. And there are certain things that I have to keep on doing. And the first thing I have to do is I still have to continue to have a money on those to stay sober, to work this program to the best of my knowledge. Because you remember when I, when I came to you, I told you I was willing to go in and to get this program, and I still have to do it. And some nights it happens about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning when that phone rings and somebody needs some help. And I begin to think, you know, maybe he can wait till after breakfast. But thank God the fact the thought still comes to those three men that night that took me to the wire and dropped me and didn't say, we'll be back after breakfast. I have to go anywhere, any length to get this program. The second thing I have to do is I have to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where it's at. As far as I'm concerned, I get something in my meetings I can't get anywhere else. And it's the people in the group, the little people. People like a couple I've been working with for years that'll keep you sober. A couple named Vernon and Gertrude. I speak of them very often because they've given me much. Vernon should have about 25 years of sobriety. He's got six. Gertrude's going on 11. Many years ago, not many years ago, several years ago, we had a Christmas Eve meeting one night and was on the eighth step. I've never forgotten it. Let me need the meeting. And after the meeting was over, we got ready to leave and Gertrude said somebody, let's go get a sandwich. And they got in the car. Now, we'd been talking about the eighth step. They'd been married for 15 years. And I've never forgotten what Gertrude said to Vernon. said, Vernon, when are you going to make some amends to me? Fifteen years. And Vernon turned around to her in all his solitude said, well, hell, Gertrude, you're not even on my list. Well, <laughs> these are the kind of people i got to be around. And whether you and I know it or not, the greatest gift, the greatest possession that we have is the love of our home group. And don't you ever forget it, is the love of your home group. You go there when you can't go anywhere else. And thank God for the fact my home group and my people have, you know, I have to walk like a talk, and they know what makes me tick. The third thing I have to do is I have to try to work these 12 steps. 
to the best of my ability, like Wes was talking about last night. And I, too, believe in that line, where granted a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Now, I know this for me, that as, I, as long as I've been trying to work these steps to the best of my ability, the spiritual condition has improved because I've come to know me. And the fourth thing I have to do some days, I have to just have to do the best I can. And there are days like that. Just hang on and do the best you can. Just do the best you can. And I don't know, when I put all these things together, I somehow think, you know, yesterday is my experience and tomorrow is my hope. And today is going from one to the other and doing the best I can. And as long as I can walk hand in hand with you down this happy road of destiny that we speak of in Alcoholics Anonymous, I too will be allowed another day of sobriety. That's what it's all about. Coincidence? If it is a coincidence, because I'm here tonight to see people I've known for quite a few years, and the things that happen to me and the things that happen to you, if it is a coincidence, then I've found a coincidence as an act of God in the midst of time. The same God that has been doing for you and I that which we could not do for ourselves. God, the Father of all mankind. You know, I guess you know by now that this program has turned me from some hatred and given me some love, and there's some lines in the big book that sums it all up to me, and I'd like to close with these lines. And it simply says this, This great experience that released me from the bondage of hatred and replaced it with love is really just another affirmation of the truth I know. I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I need I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find that it was just what I wanted all the time. The greatest thing that has ever happened to me in my lifetime is Alcoholics Anonymous. And the longer I stay sober, the greater it becomes. Thank you very much.